things to come. So as we look at this, we're going to get a little more of a picture of eternity, of heaven, what it's going to be like forevermore once, once uh, the time comes for us to be there. So let's just go in front of the throne of grace, ask the Lord to show us, make it clear to us, help us to understand it and remember it. And let's just do this in his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for this privilege of coming together, assembling ourselves together in fulfillment of your principles, fulfilling uh, what you have told us to do. And Father, we pray now we'll use this time that you have so graciously provided. We pray that we'll be encouraged, we'll be challenged, uh, we'll be convicted where we need it as we look into what, you're, what you have planned for us for all of eternity. May we be all the more appreciative. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just been uh, taught in the last verse that we looked at the last time. was It's one of those things that kind of makes it look like your sins can keep you out of heaven. Well, if you don't trust Christ who paid for your sins, yeah, then in a sense, that'll keep you out of heaven. It's, we saw that big list there about cowards. We don't want to be one of the cowards, and it kind of flows into the rest of the list outside of the cowards. Okay, and then it goes on to talk about other categories of cowardice that are, that are there, but some people are just afraid to believe in Jesus Christ. In our country, it's not, not that bad, but in other countries, it could cost them everything. It could literally cost them their lives. And you know, we read in Romans 1 this morning that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and nobody's got an excuse not to want to go to Him. What makes us think that this little bit of pressure that we've got is an excuse as we stand in front of the, the Almighty? Now, here we are in verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. That takes us back to chapter 16, the bowl judgments, full of the last seven plagues. This is over a thousand years earlier in, in time, during time. So he says, one of the angels, it takes us back to this guy that poured out the bowls just before the second advent of Christ that would bring in the millennial kingdom. He says, came and spoke with me. This is John. This is John. What a, what a special thing this is. Saying, come here. This is, I, I love this little word. Duro is the word that is used here. It's used nine times. Come to this place. Come to where I am. Come hither, if you will. That's the old English translation of it. Come here. And I, this bold angel, will show you the bride. The Numfe is what the Greek word is used eight times means a bride I'll show you the bride and then he explains the bride the wife the gune uh, it literally means the woman and uh, that's probably one of the the worst words to describe a woman I've ever seen but God chose it uh, a gune just doesn't come into English very well it's beautiful in the Greek but it just doesn't quite translate properly I think for us it's, it's talking about the woman of the lamb the arneon is the word used here 30 times this word used 29 of them are in the book of revelation 
the lamb, the diminutive, the small, means a sheep or a lamb. The only other place this word used outside of Revelation is John 21, 15, when the Lord told Peter to feed his arneon, his lambs. That's got a lot of ramif. That means he, he became flesh just like us. It, it looks at the fact that the hypostatic union, the perfect lamb, and he said, and who are we? We're his lambs, aren't we? Feed them, is what he told Peter. Now, <clears throat> then First uh, Peter, the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the lamb, but it's a different word. And it's the word omnos. Actually, we get ham from it. Homnos is the word used only four times, and it refers to a sacrificial lamb that is there. So it's got more of a technical meaning. John's getting a tour of the New Jerusalem. That's what's going on in the narrative here. He is getting a tour of the New Jerusalem. His guide is one of the angels that poured out the bold judgments over a thousand years earlier in the prophetic time frame. Now this, this kind of gives us a little picture of angelic eternity as well. They're going to be there for all of eternity. What are the angels still doing there? Well, Hebrews, first and second chapter, Kelvin reading from Hebrews 1, talks about the angels being ministering spirits sent out to help those who will, who will inherit salvation. And here is one of these uh, angels out there just showing John around. Uh, you know, we'll get to meet this angel. We'll get to meet these bowl angels in eternity. It's hard to imagine. And it, you remember all the people, you look back in history and go, I'd sure like to meet that person and have a talk with them. And then we are so confined to what we know as time and space, especially time, we're going, how will we ever have time for that? And eternity is no problem. <laughs> See, I, you don't, I wonder if we'll have schedules up there, scheduling. Now, some people... Heaven without schedules would be hell. <laughs> they've, they've, got to, they've got to have a schedule. We've got to have a to-do list. That's what we got. We have to have this to-do list. But one day, you know, all of our to-do lists are going to be gone. See? We've got things we might like to do, but I don't, I'm not going to be there by 2 o'clock Thursday. Okay? I don't think we'll have doctor's appointments. In fact, I know those will all be gone. That'll free up a lot of time won't it? So we'll have time to just talk and visit with, with people. Eternity is a sequence of events. There is a chronology to it, but there is no consideration for duration. How do you measure eternity? Time was made for man. Time was made as a clock ticking on the angelic conflict. And for us to remotely move into a timeless condition... We can't fathom that. It is beyond our capabilities right now. Whenever you pass, then some of the arguments, they write books about it. Are you going to go into the presence of the Lord or not? Huh. But you don't have your new body yet, right? Because you're not going to get your new body until the rapture of the church, right? When this mortal puts on immortality and this corruptible puts on incorruptibility and you're going to... Well, what if I die? What happens to me when I die? All kinds of papers written about it. Well, to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. That's doctrine. Second Corinthians is where it's found. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. 
but you don't have a body until it is resurrected. It means that we've got some type of interim body that is not our final body. That's the only conclusion you can reach. Now that final body, see, happens for the church at the rapture, at the resurrection of the righteous. So is, uh, is someone laying in there sleeping? From our perspective, they're sleeping in the ground if they've been put in the ground from man, hum, humanity. I can't use man anymore. My word soft, Microsoft Word wants to change it every time I put it in there. But the, from our perspective, they're sleeping the ground. If you're standing in a cemetery when the rapture happens, it'd be a great place, wouldn't it? Absolutely great place to see the dead stand up first because the Greek is a sequence of events. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the clouds of the sky. It's a beautiful picture. So to be in a cemetery, uh, wouldn't that be just wonderful? Not scare the bejeebers out of a lot of people, for sure. But I think getting ready for the rapture and being prepared is a matter of, of, of are you going to say manna when the trumpet sounds? What is it? Or are you going to say hallelujah when the trumpet sounds? To me, that's kind of being prepared. Everybody's going to be startled. It's just going to happen. It's going to happen quickly. Even when you know it's coming, it's going to happen quickly. And so, yeah, we're going to do that. But uh, for how long? Not long. We'll know what it is. It'll be a wondrous time. But eternity, we're caught up into eternity. So what happens when you pass right now? In a sense, you've moved into the timeless state. You have moved into eternity. Where there is a sequence of events that is going on. But really there's no concept of a duration of time. So I think you go right into the presence of the Lord. You can talk to him. You can see him. You can bypass Peter at the pearly gates. Because you got the pike pass that goes you know, around the side, you're not going to be stopped and be stopped and be questioned about whether you're good enough to get in. Another John proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Now this is so cool. I love these passages. John one twenty nine, one thirty six, you get later into the book and, and John's disciples were coming to him and he said, Who is who is this guy? Who is this guy? And it's kinda of like, why don't you just go ask him? And commentators say it's kind of like John lost his faith for a little bit. John got unnerved for a little bit being in prison, thrown in there, getting ready to be beheaded. And I'm looking at that defies the context. What did John say the first time he saw, he knew Jesus, his cousin in the flesh. What did John say when he saw him coming to be baptized? Behold the Lamb of God. Right? that takes away the sin of the world. John knew who he was. John knew what he was going to do. He knew his mission. John knew that. John wasn't. So what do you, why do you still have disciples following John? Okay? Because he said, he must increase, I must decrease. You need to follow him. That's what John said about Jesus. And here, John's disciples are coming to him. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And he says, go ask him. I think he finally got tired of, I have no idea what's doing that other than the devil himself. The, uh, so anyway, they go and ask 
they go and talk to Jesus because they weren't supposed to be following John anymore. The disciples of John were disobedient disciples, right? So he says, go ask him. Anyway, that's a side note, but it's fun. He takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God and his act of sacrifice was foretold in the Old Testament. It wasn't something new that the Christian church came up with. In Acts 8, chapter 32 and 33 says, He was led as sheep to slaughter as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? That quotes Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. It's an interesting thing that, that befuddles the Jews, even today, is Isaiah 53. And I've heard in some of the synagogues, when they read through the, 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 the Bible every three to five years, depending on what cycle they've got set up, they leave Isaiah 53 out in their reading because it throws a monkey wrench in all the Judaistic theology because it talks about a Messiah who is going to suffer and die and it gives specifics and the answers to I wish they would read it because the word is alive and powerful I wish they would read it in the you can pray for that they would read it in their synagogues why? how do you argue with that? how do you argue with the fact that Messiah was going to suffer and die. Now they want the conquering king. But first he had to come and suffer and pay for their sins. They thought their animal sacrifices would pay for their sins. No, it's recorded in the Old Testament. God is not pleased with those things. Never has been. Especially whenever they come from the wrong attitude. He is the unblemished and the spotless lamb. From 1 Peter 1 verse 18. Telling us knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. From your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But with precious blood as of a lamb. Unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. For he, who was, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So your faith and your hope are in God. He is God in the flesh. The conclusion that we can reach from this, the bride has a very special relationship. That's the way it works. The husband-wife relationship. It's a very special relationship that God designed all the way back in the garden between Adam and Eve. And why do you think the devil's after it? I mean, it, that's what he does. That's who he is. He is a liar from the beginning and will do everything to destroy it. It hit me that you, Y-O-U, are part of the U, E-W-E. Anyway. Verse 10, New Jerusalem. And he still context the bold angel carried me, which is John, away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Now, this is 
little bit of an interesting construction because the preposition here is not not a preposition we would expect like ice it is a pre preposition we don't expect epi but it's translated to because what he's saying is he sent me up on it epi means upon so if you have a circle epi's the one right at the top of the circle as far as prepositions go and he took me to there but the, the emphasis is on the fact he set him upon it upon a great and high mountain and he showed me deknuo is the word d-e-i-k-n-u-o used 33 times it is a, a beautiful word means to visibly display so the eyes can see it just dis displayed there or showed me it means that your eyes can see it and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the new heaven think about it the new heavens and new earth old heavens and earth have gone away uh, present tense is katabino John gets a vision of this actually happening John's watching it's present participle that's here coming down out of the heaven remember it's the new one from the God there's only one he's picking up on verse 2 and he's starting to expand it there was a new heaven and a new earth now this takes place on the new earth because all the mountains fled away in the tribulation remember the bold angels the final earthquake and what did it say all the mountains fled away is what happened so here are the, the mountains are gone but the new heavens and new earth guess what they got mountains on them so there's no contradiction people look at this and say well all the mountains fl fled away and then they'll leave a few verses out and say put him on a mountain see it's a contradiction it's not a contradiction it's just a change of timing that is there Satan took Jesus to a great and high mountain you remember that to tempt him with all the kingdoms of the world but it didn't work that was back in Matthew 4 8 when the devil got hold of Jesus trying to tempt him into sin and he took him to that great and he said showed him all the kingdoms of the earth said I'll give them to you bow down and worship me the Lord said no not no but absolutely not it's not going to happen this is the city Abraham looked for in Hebrews chapter 11 we'll, we'll see that passage in a little bit and all believers are supposed to look for it now if you would there turn to Hebrews 12 and verse 22 Hebrews 12 and verse 22 we covered this I just said a short while ago it's probably been two or three years it's kind of like I'm living in the eternal state sometimes <laughs> time, time travels a lot faster than I do <laughs> we were talking yesterday it's so weird I remember whenever we were kids of 20 or 30 and we heard these old people talking about 30 and 40 years ago <laughs> and we're gosh they must be old and now we're talking about you know uh, gosh Helen and I have been married 52 years as of last Monday so and that just seems like yesterday so it's, it's weird how things I guess time is relative things slow down <laughs> only it just go faster and faster where did that day go Hebrews 12 22 
but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels. Now, this is what is here for the church. Okay, We haven't got there yet because the new heavens and new earth aren't there. It says, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now, see, that's a good thing, righteous men. Where do we get this righteousness? We just sang about it. It's imputed at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. You can't get righteous enough, so he gives you his. Okay? But you're still not perfect, are you? Anybody in here perfect? You need to be up here. Okay? Because this guy here ain't perfect. And most of you know that. The spirits are righteous men, but one day we will be. Isn't that cool? One day. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it. This is one of the commands and exhortations. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This is the seventh and final warning found in the book of Hebrews right here. And it's a warning because who's he writing to? Jews. Who is he addressing? Primarily believers, but also it's an evangelistic book to, to the unbelieving Jews to try and say, this is what this stuff means, people. Take a look at it. This is what they've been trying to tell you all along, you hard-headed and stiff-necked group of people who died. And just look at what he did back in chapter 4. You know, about enter, they did not enter into his rest there. They instead, they wandered around the desert. They yelled manna all the time, complained about it. You know, and, and they, they said and they were laid low out there in the desert. He says, okay, live based on what God says. And his voice shook the earth then. Takes the Jews back to Sinai, doesn't it? Now he has promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. When did that happen? Uh, he shook the earth at the end of the tribulation, right? When did he destroy the earth? In the millennium. When did he also destroy with the earth? The heaven. This is the, the, the book is totally compatible with itself. And this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. When he makes this new heaven and new earth, it'll never be shaken again. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Let us live in grace. By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, fear, phobos, with, with fear and respect, for our God is a consuming fire. Yeah, what a, what, what a blessing we've got laid in front of us. And see, this is when he's, he's bringing to culmination all that he's ever promised. This is the city whose architect and builder is God, whom Abraham 
look for. See, people look back and they go, we know Revelation is progressive and God started in the garden with the promise of the Messiah and, and gradually gave us a whole lot more information that went along with it. And people look back and say, Abraham was stupid, theologically. He didn't know up from down about anything of any real importance. And I'm going, yes, he did. Or Hebrews wouldn't have wrote that. He knew about the eternal state. Looking for the city whose architect and builder is God? Yeah. Where did he possibly learn that? Maybe God laid it out in the stars. That he put in there for signs and for seasons. Until man messed it up. And he said, I'm going to write it down. And they messed that up too. But still, we get the truth out of it. While the real estate clause of the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in the millennium, the city clause is fulfilled in the eternal state. The city, this new Jerusalem, Galatians chapter 4. Jesus is in the revelation business. I, I like this. He, that's who he is. The word revelation used in, in the book of Revelation is apocalypto and apocalypsis. It means to take the veil off something. And I, I just love it because what do, what do brides traditionally have over their face until the wedding? A veil. What happens? She's unveiled is what happens. What is God doing with this book? He is unveiling his plan of the ages. Letting us in on it. This is the, the beauty of it. Look at look how many times he used it in the book of Revelation. He wants to show us what has to take place. Revelation 1.1. He wants to give us some of the details. Revelation 4.1. Behold a door standing open in heaven. And, I, and John was what? Shown. Once again. He wants to give us some of the details. He wants to show us the judgment of evil. It's also used in Revelation 17. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot that sits on many waters. He also wants to show us the river of the water of life. Revelation 22.1. That's coming up. And he wants to show his bondservants things to come. The key there being bondservants. Because not every believer is going to know what's coming up. Because a bondservant is one that has become, has chosen to sell out because of the greatness of the king. They said, I couldn't do any better. I'm going to serve you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to love you for what you have done for me. That's what a bondservant is. There's nothing bad about that connotation at all. He does not want us to worship mere human or angelic messengers. That's Revelation 22.8. Jesus is in the revelation business. Now he says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain... And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from the God. Having the glory of the God. What did? The new Jerusalem. Having the glory of the God. Her brilliance. This is the word foster. It's only used two times. The other use is Philippians 2.15. We'll look at it in just a second. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone. Now, this stone, drilling a little deeper, lithos, is a cut stone. There are stones that are just plain old rocks. 
Petra, Petra, small rocks, big rocks, and all this. This one was a stone, and a lithos is a cut stone. Now, <coughs> it's a cut stone with many facets to it. Uh, the timios that comes with it, this very costly stone, timios means that it's valuable. It has weight to it. We get the word honor from this word group. It's valuable. It's precious. It's used in 1 Corinthians 3.12 of the believer's works. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, <coughs> it's also used in Revelation 17.4 and 18 of the valuables of the offspring of the great whore of Babylon. Using there to give us some parallel here so we can have some grasp of what heaven's going to be like. But it, it's similar to that. This is a great, brilliant, translucent stone. It says, like a very costly stone, as a cut stone of crystal clear jasper. Now this is a present participle of crystallizo. I think we get crystal from it. It's only used once. Wouldn't you expect that? This is a whole new heaven and earth. And the other one's been burnt up. All the elements have been burnt up. And here's a word only used one time to describe what's going to be in this new city. The nouns used twice in 4-6. Um, we saw it back in 4-6. And we're going to see the noun used again in 22-1 in this book. It means crystal clear. So the city reflects its creator. The city reflects its creator. The city's compared to a translucent stone, probably a diamond. I, I took a course one time in gemology. And what I found out is I know absolutely nothing about gemstones. And you have to be, you have to know exactly what you're doing with those. But it's taught, one of the things they teach you is how to grade diamonds. Now, B.C. Clark's is not ready to hire me to grade their diamonds. But you know what to look for. And you find out that there's no such thing as a flawless diamond. There are flawless zirconias. <laughs> they're, they're, they're flawless synthetics. But there's no such thing as a flawless diamond. So if you look into this rock and you can't find a flaw with a, with a loop, the little magnifying glass... It's not a diamond. There's going to be a flaw in there somewhere. But what we find here is a flawless diamond. That's what it's talking about. Crystal clear. No flaws whatsoever in this. Now this was the last stone on the breastplate of the high priest. Representing Benjamin. Whose name in Hebrew means son of my right hand. Sound like Jesus sitting at the right hand? The fact that the stone is cut represents the work of Jesus Christ. From Matthew 21, 42 says, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came out about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This chief cornerstones are cut. They're cut with a great precision. They're cut with several facets because from the cornerstone, everything is laid out. My dad was a, a bricklayer 
and that's part of what they do is they is they move up the ladder from being <laughs> carrying mortar around into where they're actually putting together buildings and projects and the first thing they have to do is get the cornerstone they have to lay it out they check it and they check it and they check it to be sure this level on all sides is perfectly square it's got its vertical uh, pitch right it's got everything right because from there everything goes and if you get that wrong the building's going to be off but we have this perfect cornerstone and his name is Jesus Christ its clarity denotes its purity in him was no evil at all now see this new Jerusalem is a, is a, a reminder a constant reminder of the Lord Jesus Christ the stone represents Christ's eternal status as the son of my right hand Psalm 1101 the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet when our lives are above reproach in case anybody was dozing when our lives are above reproach we are bright lights in a dark world remember I said the word was only used two times foster and the other use was Philippians 2.15 in Philippians 2 verse 14 and 15 says do all things without grumbling you think why did he have to put that in there and why did he have to put it in the context of Jesus going to a cross that's the context okay and then Philippians 2.10 at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and you get a little farther down there and it goes do all things without grumbling in other words be Christ like or disputing you know, we get so good at grumbling that I bet we don't even confess that. <laughs> Hardly anymore. Well, he knows. <laughs> Be, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverted generation among whom you appear as foster in the world holding fast the word of light when you do that and you do it for the glory of God you reflect the glory of God and you light up the world that's what we're supposed to do isn't it we are supposed to be lights in the middle of the darkness we are supposed to be on a path to honor and serve our Lord that others can follow we're not supposed to be wandering around out in the darkness somewhere trying to fulfill our own will we are supposed to be right in the center of his will walking on that straight and narrow road not seeing how close to the edge we can get I know little kids you let them out in the backyard say you're staying in the backyard first thing they'll do is go to the fence and that's true isn't it first thing they do is go to the fence and they find out just how far they can go and then they start to climb it you know you can't do that you have to teach them properly now verse 12 says it had a great and high wall this is the city it had a great and high wall this is a takos 
T-E-I-C-H-O-S, used nine times, and it used primarily of a wall around the city, but it also can be used for the wall of a house. In my father's house, see, so you could use it in that sense, and it's the wall around the city, the New Jerusalem. So the city is the father's house with 12 gates. A gate is a pulon, it's used six, 18 times, and it means it's a gateway with a porch in front of it. And at the gates, literally upon, preposition epi, not at the gates, upon the gates. Upon the gates, 12 angels. Now this is beautiful because the angelic conflict is resolved. It's done. Satan's in the lake of fire. He's no longer around anymore. What's going to be happening in the New Jerusalem? Ah, at the gates, 12 angels. They don't have any more battles to fight with the devil, do they? It's all over. And names were written on them, written on the gates, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, I love this because the walls teach eternal security, which, unlike Jericho, are not going to fall down. You're inside. It's a picture of being in the Father's hand for all of eternity. It's the same picture, uh, that he's, that he's, same principle, teaching us with different word pictures. The twelve gates face in every direction, teaching that salvation was available to all. See, when he died, he died for the sins of the entire human race. Open it up to all. And I think a big part of that is to show volition is involved in that, in that selection, because some chose not to enter, not to enter. The angelic guards, if you will, are reminders of the protection of Israel in the angelic conflict. Here's the 12 tribes with the names of the 12 tribes all around them, an angel on top. Oh, and by the way, who did God send to protect them? I think there's probably a special place for Gabriel and, and Michael, guardian angels of Israel. Um, each gate's named after a tribe of Israel teaching. Salvation is of the Jews. John 4.22 You worship that which you do not know. Who's he talking to in John 4? The woman at the well and the, the group that came out. He says you worship who you don't, do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. The big argument over where they were supposed to go to worship. He says, you just kind of missed the whole point there, didn't you? He's talking to the Samaritan people. And the disciples, I love that. You think about the disciples following him along, and they're going just like this. They're in a place they don't want to be. They, because Samaria was unclean. <laughs> and where did the Lord take them? Right into the middle of the unclean. What did he do when he became flesh and dwelt among us? came right into the area of the unclean. <laughs> so, so Samaria was no big deal for him. He walked into this, this fallen, forsaken uh, planet, and he took care of business. Now, <clears throat> the probable layout of the gates with the, with the 
uh, millennial placements being the pattern for eternity. That's kind of how I would guess who goes where. This is, uh, like I, I hate to guess, but I would say this probably connects together, but you can't, can't build a doctrine on it. This is a probable, not a positive. Uh, Ezekiel 48 on the east wall, north to south, Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. North wall, east to west, Reuben, uh, Judah, and Levi. South wall, Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. And the west wall, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Now, <clears throat> verse 14, and the wall of the city <clears throat> had 12 foundation stones. Foundation stone is the word themelios. It's used 16 times. It means a placed foundation. Now, <clears throat> it comes from the word tethemi. It's a word group of tethemi. And tethemi means to sit or to place. Now, it's kind of like the um, orderly versus the disorderly foundation of the world, where it was all put together. It's saying that these were, were laid there. There is a foundation that's, that's called a, a balo, and rocks were just thrown into the foundation. Okay, I like gravel, things like that. It was a, a disorderly foundation. Then there were other foundations that were set like concrete, the concrete that we're setting on. It's finished out. That's a themelios, that which is put in place with a pattern to it, a design, a structure. And so <clears throat> this one had 12 foundation stones. It means that, that when God built them, he built them and he put them in place. The... Um, Yeah, the, the katabale is the uh, disorderly foundation. And it says, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Hmm. Abraham looked for this city. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 11 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, I can't even move, but I can't talk and not move. But anyway, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for the city where the foundations had been placed in an orderly manner. Abraham looked for it. Who's the foundation? Jesus Christ. According to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another's building upon it. Let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you have a foundation that's a solid rock. Didn't we used to sing a song about that a lot? On Christ the solid rock I stand. And then you have the foundation stones laid on top of the solid rock. Okay, so the foundation is underneath. Then you have the 12 stones placed as the second layer on that rock and they become part of the foundation the apostles were called the foundation of the church 
from Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 20. It says, You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, and in the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The wall possesses twelve foundations, each representing an apostle. The twelve apostles were given authority to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. You see how all this stuff comes together? Eventually, during the millennial kingdom. Because eternity is going to have a little reminder of what God has set up and brought to pass over the course of human history. <clears throat> Good works are the basis for an orderly foundation. For an orderly foundation. And the apostles had a lot of them. It's amazing to see, to go to the place I was privileged to go to the place in India and Chennai where Thomas the apostle was martyred and of course a shrine was built there which is neither here nor there but that's where he was martyred what fascinates me is that Thomas landed on the west coast of India and he walked all the way across the subcontinent to the east coast evangelizing that's what he did that's where the use of languages was seen uh, in his prominence because he didn't have time to learn those 200 languages and dialects I asked some Indians there how many languages between between this point on the west and this point on the east they had probably 200 and he didn't have time to learn them what did he do he went in and evangelized all of them you think he's got any fruit there's still a church of St. Thomas in existence today that tracks its, its uh, founding back to the apostle that is there huh, they had a lot of fruit but see the works you do carries fruit too 1 Timothy 6 instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy because he has blessed you financially doesn't mean you have to feel guilty about it. Well, why would God put that in? Maybe he looked down the sands of time and looked at today and he saw a bunch of idiots running around the United States trying to get you to feel guilty for the blessings that God has poured out on you. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. If he's given it to you, thank him for it and use it. And praise God for it. That's That's... That's what you do. Thank him for it. Use it. Spread the word. He says, but on God, instruct them to do good. To be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. And look at this. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I think Dr. Ryrie hit it on the head can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead believers are called to build on their spiritual foundation by becoming spiritually mature we're supposed to do these good works not to get saved but because we are saved but look at this it's a it is a memorial to the 12 apostles to the church 
What do we have? The 12 tribes. Who were to judge them? The 12 apostles during the millennial kingdom. Did they take what they were given and spread it? Absolutely. Look at the, the New Jerusalem. It's a reminder of God's amazing grace throughout the course of human history translated into eternity. What a blessing. Nobody's there because they earned it. Everybody's there by the grace of God alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace, your mercy, your love, for just your amazing plan. Thank you for this small glimpse into it that we get to see through your word. Father, may we, be remember, may we remember it. May we be challenged by it. And may we, Father, seek to live what we've learned today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.